Here's another Bible study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. If you want to go ahead and turn your Bibles to Daniel chapter 9, you've probably heard that a few times, and that's because we've been in Daniel chapter 9 for three weeks so far. And uh, so, but it's been good. It's been a, it's been a very, I've, to be honest with you, you know, I've done Daniel chapter 9. I've usually done just one chapter, just kind of fly through. Uh, and I just really sensed as I've been going in and digging in, it's like, man, there is so much here. And so we're, we just kind of, kind of, it didn't come to a halt, but we definitely kind of slowed down, and we're just really digging into this to this chapter in particular, and we'll, we might be doing that in other chapters as well. But this one in particular, I just thought it had a lot of a lot of things for us to look at. And so, again, we're in in Daniel chapter nine, and this is part three. And uh, the uh, title I gave it a title, and it's basically sixty nine weeks, and you'll understand that as we get into uh, this chapter. Now, what we know from from our last uh, couple studies is that Daniel had been reading the scroll of Jeremiah. He's in Babylonian. He's in Babylon in captivity, and uh, he's an old man. He's probably in his eighties by this time. He's reading the scroll of Jeremiah, and he's understanding from the from the word of God that their time of captivity is drawing to a close. And so, what a joyful thing. God had promised he would return the children of Israel that are in captivity, the the nation of Judah, back into uh, the nation of Israel and and back to Jerusalem. And so, what Daniel did was he set his face toward the Lord, uh, toward the Lord God, to make request by prayer and supplications with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. And it says that he was speaking praying, confessing his sin and the sins of his people Israel and presenting his supplication before the Lord. He's just mourning and and just grieving and confessing sin. And, And then it says, while he was still praying, the angel Gabriel appeared to him. And he said this, Daniel, I have now come forth to give you skill to understand. At the beginning of your supplications, the command went out, and I have come to tell you, for you are greatly beloved. Therefore, consider the matter and understand the vision. And that's what we'll be looking at this morning. Daniel is given a prophecy. And this, this appearing of the, of the angel Gabriel and what he's going to tell Daniel, it actually, as we dig in, we're going to see it's actually a direct answer to Daniel's prayer. But it goes very far beyond that. And, you know, I just want to encourage you in your time to, to spend that time praying, spend time with the Lord, because the Lord, will, will he answers prayers. We've been praying for this young man, Merrick, and God is answering that prayer. God answers prayers, but he goes beyond that. And, and as you develop a time of just sitting before the Lord and praying, he's going to start speaking to you and showing you things beyond what you're praying about. That's, that's the beauty of having a relationship with the living God for you and I. And so he goes far beyond what Daniel was praying about. And so verse 24 is where we're going to pick it up this morning. And this is the prophecy. And we're going to look at verse 24 actually is the scope. He's given the scope of the entire prophecy. And let's read this. Daniel 9 verse 24. Seventy weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression 
to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. That gives Daniel the scope of what this prophecy that he's about to receive. And so the angel said there, 70 weeks are determined for your people and your holy city. The prophecy involves a people and a place. The people, of course, are Daniel's people. He says, your people. These are Daniel's people, the Jews. And he mentions that it's, uh, the scope also includes your holy city. And that, of course, would be Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem. Daniel, the, the, the Jewish people and their nation, Israel. You know, back in Matthew's gospel... Jesus is leaving the temple, Herod's temple. Herod's temple was a man, it wasn't as, as magnificent as Solomon's temple. That, I don't think anything could rival that. But Herod had spent a lot of money and a lot of investment, and he had really beautified the second temple. And uh, his disciples are just marveling, like everybody would as they came to Jerusalem, marveling at the construction of the temple. And Jesus starts talking about the fact that, that these stones of these temples, there's not going to be one left upon another. And they're just like, what are you talking about? And so in Matthew chapter 24 and 25, and also in Mark 13, because uh, the, the Gospels, all except for John, include this, and Luke 21, the di- disciples are asking Jesus three things. And they basically say, tell us, when will these things be? And of course, they're talking about the destruction of the temple. But they also ask, and what will be the sign of your coming? And basically, what will be the sign of the end of the age? And what Jesus does is he refers back to Daniel chapter 9, what we're looking at this morning. He refers back to this prophecy. The prophecy of the 70 weeks is key uh, is key to end-time prophecy. The, the women are going through the book of Revelation, and, and uh, man, I'd love to be a part of that Bible study, but they're going through that, and they're learning about the prophecies of the end times. Well, Daniel chapter 9, in fact, Daniel, the book of Daniel, it just it really fits in with the prophecy of, of uh, Revelation because it's key. Seventy weeks are key to end-time prophecy, and what that means is that the Jews, the, the, the people of the Jews, and the nation of Israel, the city of Jerusalem, is also key to end-time prophecy. And Jesus corroborates that in the Gospels when he refers back to what we're looking at this morning. That's exciting. For me, it's exciting because there has to be a race of Jews in the last days. That's amazing. You know, how many Philistines do you guys know? You guys have any, like, Philistines that moved into your neighborhood? Or, or Hittites, you know, or Canaanites, you know? Now, you know, I, I know with DNA that probably someone can go, you know, I'm, I'm anciently related to, maybe, I don't know if that's a fact or not. I'm anciently related to, I've got some Philistine genes in me or something, you know, I don't, who knows. Um, but listen, a people with their language, with their culture, with their religion intact, no Philistines or Hittites or Canaanites. You can, you can list off all kinds of different, different people groups, but you probably do know a Jewish person 
a Jewish person. Their, their language, their culture, everything is intact. That is amazing. That is amazing. So not only has there be a race of the Jews in the last days, but there also has to be a nation of Israel and a city of Jerusalem in the last days. And again, now you and I that are maybe uh, younger age, I, I guess I'm kind of younger, related to some of you maybe, but you know, we kind of take this for granted. But May 14th, 1948, that became a reality. Before that, Israel wasn't a nation for 2,000 plus years. And May 14th, 1948, the nation of Israel is born. That is exciting. And, and I imagine the, the believers that were, you know, in 1948 were probably like, oh, Jesus is coming back soon because this is part of end time prophecies. There has to be a temple in Jerusalem, because Daniel talks about it here in these last days prophecies. And there is not a temple in Jerusalem right now. Not yet, I should say. If you were to go to Israel, make a, make a, make a point of visiting the Temple Institute. You can visit them online by going to templeinstitute.org. They didn't pay me to advertise for them, by the way. But uh, you can go there. They are all, pretty much, all set to do temple worship. They just need a temple. That's all, they're, that's all they're waiting for. They have got the priests prepared. They're training priests. They've got the garments. They've got the utensils. They've got, I think they even have the ashes of the red heifer. I'm not positive on that, but I think you can go there. They always do updates on their website of what they've, where they're at now. And so there isn't a temple, but there will be very soon. So the scope of the prophecy involves the Jewish people and the city of Jerusalem. Also, the scope of prophecy encompasses a time frame, and we're given a time frame here, and the time frame is 70 weeks. Now, what does that mean, 70 weeks? Well, the word weeks is the Hebrew word sabua. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. It's probably sabua, but it's, it's a noun, and it means seven, and it indicates a unit of seven. An English equivalent to that would be known as a heptad, and translated, this actually means there would be 70 periods of seven. Now, we, we read that and go, well, there's 70 weeks. That's what it says right there. Well, the context here in, Jan, in Daniel chapter 9 is a week of years. And then you might say, that seems kind of weird to me, a week of years. Does that sound strange to you? Well, I guarantee it wouldn't sound strange to a Hebrew person of the Bible in Daniel's day. Why? Because the Bible talks about a week of days, which is what you and I would know a week to be, a week of days, um, as in the creation week. They knew about that. There's also in the Bible a week of weeks. Shavuot, uh, I'm, not, I'm slaughtering the pronunciation, but basically the feast of weeks. Um, there's also a week of months. The seven months between the uh, Nisan and Tishri, uh, they contain the seven feasts of Israel from uh, Passover all the way to Sukkot. And then, of course, there's a week of years in the Bible. Every seven years, there would be a Sabbath year. And so a Jewish person would be very familiar with a week of weeks or a week of months or a week of years. The context here, I believe, is a week of years. 70 weeks of years. In fact, the reason for the Babylonian captivity in part, and I wouldn't say it in full, but in part was because 
technically they disregarded those the every seventh year they disregarded those seven uh, Sabbath year for so many years in fact the Lord God through Jeremiah said for every year every Sabbath year you've neglected you're gonna go into captivity one year for every year every Sabbath that you've neglected and so for 70 Sabbath years they neglected observing it and so they would be in captivity for 70 years and of course, this is what Daniel's reading. Go, man, and I—I I don't know exactly the time frame of when Daniel was reading it, but he's like, it's—it's it's close. He knows that that time is almost up. It's interesting because, of course, I'm not a mathematician, but you know, seventy is a multiple of seven. I don't know if you know that yet. Seventy is a multiple of seven. Seven is a number that appears throughout the Bible over and over and over again. The number, of course, is the number of completeness, and you read it everywhere in the Bible. And I'm going to give you a few examples. Um, first of all, you guys all know, there's seven days of creation. There's seven days until after when Noah entered the ark before it actually rained. He was waiting in the ark for seven days. Um, Noah waited seven days between sending out the doves at the end of the flood when to find out if the land had dried. Jacob served for seven years for each of his two wives. You guys know that story. Um, also in Genesis, there were seven cows and seven ears of corn in Pharaoh's dream. The, the lampstand, the, the menorah, there's seven lamps of the menorah. There's seven feasts of Israel. There's seven days of the feast of unleavened bread. Uh, there's seven days, excuse me, seven weeks to the feast of weeks. Um, seven years for Solomon to build the temple took him seven years. Uh, Naaman, I don't know if you remember that guy, is a Syrian guy. He had to wash in the Jordan seven times. That's in the Old Testament. There's a lot more than that. You get into the New Testament, there's seven deacons appointed in the book of Acts. There, do you remember the seven sons of Sceva? That's kind of a funny story, but uh, they're mentioned there is seven. In John's gospel, John records seven I am statements that Jesus made. The book of Revelation, which you women are digging into, there's all kinds of sevens in there. There's seven lampstands, there's seven churches, there's seven seals, seven trumpet judgments, seven bowl judgments, seven thunders, etc., etc., and etc. And you might say, why are you bringing that up? Well, for me, that just lends to the authority of the Word of God as being divinely inspired. It just, it just, it just, why do I say that? Because unlike any other book that's written, the Bible is so unique. It was written by over 40 different authors on three different continents, taking a span of over 2,000 or around 2,000 years, and yet there's a cohesive message throughout the entire scriptures. And sevens is replete. In fact, um, if you can get, you can actually get into the uh, the Hebrew letters themselves, and there's multiples of sevens in there. Uh, Chuck Missler wrote a, bi a book called uh, he didn't write the Bible. He wrote a book called uh, Hidden Codes of the Bible. And he talks about that, and uh, it's 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 there's a whole field of study in that of the of the sevens that are even in the Hebrew alphabet. It's it's amazing thing. But anyways, the sevens throughout Scripture point to divine authorship. So just want to share that with you. So the scope of the prophecy, of course, we talked about, involves a people, the Jewish people, in a place, Jerusalem. It encompasses a time frame. And then the angel tells Daniel this, that the scope of prophecy concerns six purposes. There's six purposes that will be completed 
in those 70 weeks. And uh, there's a list of six. You can actually divide them into two groups of three. The first group, uh, to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, those all have to do with sin. And those all are a direct answer to Daniel's prayer. Remember back in verse 5, Daniel says, We have sinned and committed iniquity. We have done wickedly and rebelled, even by departing from your precepts and your judgments. And so God gives them this answer. It's going to be dealt with. It's going to be dealt with. At the completion of the 70 weeks, sin will be addressed with regard to the Jewish people. You might say, well, what about Jesus died on the cross and paid the price for our sins? That's true. And I hope that you have that personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. But the scope of this prophecy deals with the Jewish people and with the nation of Israel. And so at the completion of the 70 weeks, sin with regard to the nation of Israel, with regard to the Jewish people, is going to be finished, and we'll look at that. The second group, uh, to bring in everlasting righteousness and to seal up vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy, um, has to do with righteousness. And that, again, also is a direct response to Daniel's prayer. Look at verse 7. O Lord, righteousness belongs to you, but to us, shame of face, as it is this day to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and all Israel. So God's addressing this about the righteousness. They're ashamed of their sins. God's going to deal with their righteousness. At the completion of the 70 weeks, righteousness will be brought in, prophecy will be fulfilled, and the temple will be made, uh, will be made holy once more. And we'll, we'll look at that in a minute here. Well, let's take a look at these individually. So first of all, to finish the transgression. The word... To finish means to bring something to its culmination. It has the idea of to close something, to shut it, or to restrain it. And the use of the word here means to bring transgression to a complete stop, to stop transgression. What is transgression? Transgression, it, if you were to boil it down, it basically, excuse me, basically uh, means rebellion against God and against his laws. And again, that is an answer to Daniel's prayer, verse 11. Daniel said, Yes, all Israel, all Israel has transgressed your law and has departed so as not to obey your voice. He's speaking as a nation, collectively as a nation. Now, what's interesting, you know, the, the children of Israel, I mentioned that they didn't observe the Sabbath years for 70 years and that for 70 Sabbaths and that's why they went into captivity but it was also because of the idolatry they adopted the idolatry of the nations all around them that God said don't do that and they did that and but the thing is when they come out of Babylonian captivity if you look at their history they're pretty much done with with the idols like you know Baal worship and all that. you don't read about that anymore after the captivity but after the captivity over time a legalistic Pharisaic Judaism sprung up. And that's the time when Jesus, you know, he's on the scene there, and the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they're basically ruling Judaism at that time. And Jesus exposes their hypocrisy. And he points out to these Pharisees how far they actually were from following the Father, how far they were from following uh, and being truly obedient to Jehovah. And then, of course, as a nation, collectively, not, in, not every single one, but as a nation, collectively, they rejected the Messiah. 
They rejected their Savior that Jehovah had sent them. And so the transgression, the rebellion of the Jewish nation collectively is going to be brought to a stop at the end of this 70 weeks that Daniel's talking about. Zechariah, and you know, you can go through a bunch of different prophecies in the Old Testament that speak about this time, but Zechariah prophesies what will take place at the completion of these 70 weeks. In Zechariah 12, verse 10, he says, And I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication, and they, then they will look on me whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his one as for, excuse me as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn collectively not talking individually collectively as a nation that has not happened yet the nation has not recognized Jesus as their Messiah. But this prophecy says at the end of these 70 weeks that Daniel's going to be, we're going to be looking at, at the end of these 70 weeks, all Israel is going to recognize Jesus as their Savior, as their Messiah. And so to finish transgression, the next one was to make an end of sins. And that word to make an end means to close up or to seal Primarily, the meaning is bringing a matter to conclusion. And the word was regularly used to indicate the closing of a letter or an official document. In those days, they, they would write something and then they would put a seal on it to close it, to, to seal it, to make it official. And uh, when a scribe, for example, had finished his work, a king would put his, his royal stamp or his seal on this, on this communication, this thing that the scribe wrote, and that means this is, this is complete. It's, it's brought to a close officially. So making an end of sins. Now sins is the same word that Daniel used in verse nine, or chapter 9, verse 20, when he said, Now while I was speaking, praying, and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God uh, for the holy mountain. Let me read that again. <laughs> Now while I was speaking, praying, and confessing my sin, and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God for the holy mountain of my God, and then keep reading, and Gabriel appears. Um, but that word sin is the most commonly word used in the Old Testament for sin. Ezekiel also prophesies what will take place for the Jewish people at the completion of the 70 weeks. It's in Ezekiel 36 verses 24 to 26. He says, For I will take you from among the nations, gather you out of all countries, and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. The first part of that prophecy is being fulfilled this very day. As soon as Israel became a nation, people started what's called making aliyah or aliyah to Israel. They were, they were moving to Israel to be back in the Holy Land. That's going on on an ongoing basis. So that part is, is being fulfilled. It's not totally fulfilled. It's being fulfilled. The second part has not been fulfilled yet. 
Now it is happening. You know, there are missions going to Israel. I remember reading uh, once about, you know, when Jesus basically sent the disciples out, he says, you know, basically preach to Jerusalem and then, and then go to Judea and Samaria and then to the ends of the world. And, and you know, for the ages, Christians, evangelical Christians have been going out to the ends of the ages. And they've been, they've been going around the planet, basically. And you missionaries have been going out and sharing the gospel to people that never heard about Christ. And it's come all the way to China. And now, I, I don't know if they're still doing it, but for a while ago, China was actually sending missionaries back to Israel. It's like it made a full circle around the globe one way. And now there's missions and missionaries to the nation of Israel. And uh, just fascinating to me. Chosen People Ministries is another ministry that they're, they're, they're just there to minister to the Jewish people. Anyways... The next or the last of that second or that first group of three is to make reconciliation for iniquity. Now, iniquity, it, what it basically conveys is the it's a twisting or a perverting de- deliberately. That is also one of the most common Hebrew words used for sin. And so, to make reconciliation, what does that mean? It, the word is kepar or kefar, and it means to cover, to forgive, or to expiate. At its most basic level, the word conveys the notion of covering, but not in the sense of just covering something over, but, you know, like to hide it, but also means to cover over in the sense that it, it changes the appearance of something. It changes what it's covered over. I'll give you a couple examples. To signify the cancellation uh, of a contract, it would be written over with a stamp, basically, canceled. You know, that's the idea, anyways, of that word. Um, Also, the overlaying of wood with pitch to make something waterproof. We see that in in the construction of the ark. It was, and that word is used, it was covered, kafor, with pitch, inside and out. The word also communicates God's covering of sin. And so when a person made reconciliation with God for their sins, they were imposing something on them that would appease the Lord and it would cover the sinners with righteousness. Now in the Old Testament, it was the blood of sacrifices. The sacrificial, Levitical sacrificial system that was used to cover over the sins, to make reconciliation. But as we get to the New Testament, you get to the book of Hebrews, chapter 10, verse 4, The writer says, For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. Because if you look at the Levitical system, every year they had the Day of Atonement. Every year. They they were covering over their sins, all the sacrifices. But it was basically just covering over. It wasn't removing the sins. And that's why the Levitical system was an ongoing system until Jesus Christ came, paid the price once and for all. And now we are reconciled, we're fully reconciled by the blood of Jesus Christ. Paul also prophesies what will take place at the completion of the 70 weeks. And it's in Romans chapter 11, verses 25 through 27. He says, For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so, verse 26, 
All Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come out of Zion and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. That's that reconciliation, not just covered over, but completely taken away. That's what you and I as believers, I'm assuming, I don't know, maybe you're not, maybe there's some Jewish believers here, but I'm assuming the majority of us are Gentile believers here. We have taken, if you have a relation with Jesus Christ, you've taken advantage of that. The blood of Jesus Christ has not only, he's forgiven us of our sins, but he's removed the sins from us as far as the east is from the west. An amazing thing. Well, for the Jewish people, for all Israel, the nation collectively, that will not occur until the completion of the 70 weeks. And that's what the angel is telling Daniel here. Again, there's, there's Jewish people that are coming faith, to coming faith in Christ right now, this day. You know, they recognize that Jesus is their Messiah. But as a nation, collectively, that's what the scope of this prophecy. And so now let's look at the second group of these purposes the next one is to bring in everlasting righteousness. And a literal translation of this means the righteousness of ages. Or you might think of it as the righteousness that transcends all ages. This, of course, has not happened yet. Our world, our earth is not righteous yet. But it will be during the millennial reign of Christ. That's when righteousness will be brought in. Let me read to you Jeremiah 33, verses 15 and 16. In those days and at that time, I will cause to grow up to David a branch of righteousness. Of course, we know that is Jesus. He shall execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. You know, next week, we're celebrating the birth of Christ. Jesus Christ came into the world, lived as a man, died on the cross for our sins. We're celebrating that, and, but he has, and he's the branch of righteousness that's being prophesied here. But he hasn't executed judgment and righteousness in the earth. That hasn't happened. That will happen. That will happen at the completion of those 70 weeks. It continues in verse 16. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell safely. And this is the name by which she will be called the Lord, our righteousness. Now, if you were to go to Israel, I remember that, well, I've only gone once to Israel. I remember being so excited. I'm going to the Holy Land and man, you know, to, to see all these biblical places and to be with God's people, his chosen people. You get there and they are as a secular as any other country around. I mean, there are, you know, Orthodox Jewish people, but by and large, it's not a Christian or not a, nor a Jewish nation as far as Judaism. Uh, there's very many secular Jewish people that live in the nation of Israel. But I love what Isaiah uh, 60 verse 21 says, Also your people shall all be righteous. They shall inherit the land forever, the branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I may be glorified. Again, that has not happened yet, but it will, the completion of the 70 weeks. put my hand in the wrong place here <laughs> all right the next one to seal up vision and prophecy now the expression to seal up we kind of talked about that earlier but it really means uh no more is going to be added it's it's closed it's completed it's finished what has been predicted will be confirmed and will be fulfilled that's what that word means to seal up vision and prophecy no more will be added 
the idea is once a letter is sealed, its contents are irreversible. You ever done that before? You know, you've you, like you're paying bills and you you seal the envelope and you 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 go, oh shoot, I forgot to sign my check or something like that. It's like ah, well of course in that case you can go back and re reverse it. You know, I always do that. Um, but that's the idea. Once something is sealed, it's it's done. It's finished. And when Jesus returns in that day, and we'll talk about that later, in that day, all Old Testament prophecies of the millennial kingdom will be fulfilled. And what's amazing is, you know, and I know some people that say, well, you know, the, the millennium's really not really talked about in the New Testament, so is, there, is it a real event or what is the re I think the reason why it's not revealed so much in the, in the New Testament is because it was abundantly revealed in the Old Testament. I mean, you go through all the Old Testament prophets pretty much. They all talk about the tribulation, or excuse me, the, the millennial reign, the thousand reign of Christ on the earth. Well, during the millennial reign, Jesus Christ will return. He will reign physically in Israel. There will no longer be a need for visions or prophets. Uh, if you got your Bibles, turn briefly to Zechariah 13. Um, it's too long to put a slide up here, so if you want to just turn to it, that might, might be good. Zechariah 13, and I'm going to just read it, verses 2 through 5. It shall be in that day, says the Lord of hosts, that I will cut off the names of the idols from the land, and they shall no longer be remembered. I will also cause the prophets and the unclean spirit to depart from the land. It shall come to pass that if anyone still prophesies, then his father and mother who begot him will say to him, You shall not live, because you have spoken lies in the name of the Lord. And his father and mother who begot him shall thrust him through when he prophesies. And it shall be in that day that every prophet will be ashamed of his vision when he prophesies. They will not wear a robe of coarse hair to deceive, but he will say, I am no prophet, I am a farmer, for a man taught me uh, to keep cattle from my youth. Interesting. During the millennial reign of Jesus Christ on the earth, he, like I say, he's going to physically be in Jerusalem. And I believe, I, I don't know if all the commentators agree with me, but I believe personally that this is what is being spoken about. During the millennium, Jesus Christ is there. There's not going to be a need for prophecy because he's there. It's all been fulfilled. He's there. There won't be a need for prophecy at that time. You know, it's interesting. Today, a person might come up to you and say, thus saith the Lord, and they're prophesying to you, and you're like, okay, now I need to, I need to you know, figure out, is this accurate or not? Is this truly from the Lord or not? And, you know, we're, we're to test the spirits, right? We're to, we're to examine that. Is it in line with Scripture? There's all different ways to, to weigh those things and to, and to measure that if that's from, truly from the Lord or not. But in that day, there won't be false prophets. You, if they are, it, man, they're going to kill them. <laughs> Basically, and people will be so ashamed. I'm not a prophet. I'm not a prophet. You know, interesting. Anyways, you won't need a teacher of the Bible either. I'll be out of a job by then. I'll be, you know, Jesus Christ. If the nations are going to go to Israel and hear from the Lord, you won't need to hear from me. You're probably going, thank the Lord. I wish today would be that day. <laughs> All right, the next thing is to anoint the most holy, and that literally in Hebrew means anoint the holy of holies. And that's speaking about the temple. Now, like I said earlier, there's no temple right now in Jerusalem. There will be. There will be a temple during the Great Tribulation, 
But as we'll discover later on, it's going to be desecrated by the Antichrist in the second half of the tribulation. We also know from Scripture, there's not going to be a, a, a temple in New Jerusalem either. Revelation 21, verse 22, but I saw no temple in it. This is speaking about the uh, New Jerusalem. But I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. So that only leaves one other time when there can possibly be a temple, and that's during the thousand-year reign of Christ on the earth. And if you go to the book of Ezekiel, chapters 40 through 48, you get a very detailed description of the temple that exists in the millennium. And you might say, I don't, know if I, I don't know if I follow that. Listen, if you go to, and I loved it when we went through those chapters in Ezekiel, when you look at the measurements and the calculations, there is nothing like it that's ever been, and nothing like that will, will be. This temple is completely different and unique. And so I believe very strongly that, that is what's being described in Ezekiel 40, verse 48, is the temple that will exist during the millennium. Again, so going through all these things, has this been accomplished for the Jewish people and in Jerusalem? And the answer is not yet. I hope you understand that. None of these are going to find their complete fulfillment until the completion of the 70th week. So let's go to verse 25 and talk about the 69 weeks. Verse 25 I know there, excuse me, I know. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and sixty-two weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall even in troublesome times. Now the first thing we need to understand, we need to get a better understanding of, is that all ancient calendars were based on a 360-day year. All the ancient calendars were based on a 360-day year, typically 12 30-day months. Now, and I've got this, I'm not, a, I'm not a smart guy, but I got this from Chuck Missler. In 701 BC, he says all calendars seem to have been reorganized. And he mentions Numa Pompilius, the second king of Rome, reorganized the original 360-day calendar, and he added five days per year. That's why we get our 365-day calendar. The biblical calendar, if you look at all the dates in the Bible, it's all based on a 360-day year. So you, gotta, you need to understand that. Well, in verse 25, we're given a time frame, seven weeks and 62 weeks. Again, I think we're talking about weeks of years. So seven weeks of years... It's basically talking about 49 years. 62 weeks of years would be 434 years. And so if you total that up, it's talking about 483 years. And so from the going forth until the command to restore and build Jerusalem, until the Messiah, the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. So we're talking 483 years. Now, why... The, the division of the 69 weeks between 7 and then 62 is anybody's guess. Nobody knows. We're not told in Scripture. The best guess is that the 49 years, the 7 weeks of years, was the duration that it took to rebuild the temple. That's the best guess anybody has because nobody knows. And Scripture doesn't reveal it to us. But if you read the book of Nehemiah, when he was sent to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, it was during troublesome times. 
And he had all kinds of opposition. If you read the book of Ezra about rebuilding the temple, it was also definitely done in troublesome times. So I think there's, there's a lot of weight to believing that that's what that refers to. So, from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince is 69 weeks of years, or 483 years, and if you want to break that down into 360-day years, it's 173,880 days. Now, if you go back in history, there were four decrees concerning the rebuilding of the temple, but there was only one that also granted the rebuilding of the walls at the same time, and that was Artaxerxes Longimanus on March 14th, 445 B.C. He also gave the, uh, the authority for them to rebuild the walls as well as the temple. So, the, according to this prophecy, the appearance of Messiah the Prince would be 173,880 days from March 14th, 445 B.C. So, if the calendars changed at some point, and we know that they did, from 360 to 365 days a year, and then if you had to factor in leap years, because there's leap years as well, uh, it would basically take someone from Scotland Yard to figure that out, you know? I mean, it would take, a, it would take like a Sherlock Holmes. Well, I wanted to introduce you to Sir Robert Anderson. He was the former head of Scotland Yard many years ago. He actually did all those calculations. He wrote a book called The Coming Prince. He did all those calculations, the 365 or 360 to 365 days. He factored in all the leap years and he came up with a date that was 173,880 days from March 14th, 445 BC. You know what the date is? I'm not going to tell you yet. <laughs> Let's go back to the prophecy for a moment. From the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. So we need to figure out who's the Prince. Well, that word Prince is the word Nagid, and the term has a broad range of applications in the Bible. It's translated a leader, a ruler, a captain, a prince as it is here, a commander, a chief governor, but the very first time it's used in the Bible, and first, first mentions in the Bible are kind of important when you're doing, trying to uh, understand things. The first time it's used in the Bible, it's used to describe Saul, who was the first king of Israel. The context of the Messiah, really, this should have been translated Messiah the king. For some reason, they were translated Messiah the prince. But we're talking about Jesus Christ. If you didn't get that yet, we're talking about Jesus Christ. So the next question is, when was Jesus Christ ever presented as a king to Israel? Well, in John 6, you'll read about Jesus miraculously feeding 5,000 men. And by the way, that didn't count women and children. It's probably more like 15,000 by a minimum that he fed on that event there in John chapter 6. But when, after he did it, in verse 14 of chapter 6, in verse 15, it says, Then those men, whoever those men were, we're not really told, when they had seen the sign that Jesus did, said, This is truly the prophet who has come into the world. Verse 15, Therefore, when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he departed again to the mountain by himself alone. 
In other words, they wanted to make him a king, and he would have nothing of it. He did not want to be presented as a king on that day. But there was a day when Jesus not only allowed people to present him as king, he actually arranged it to happen. And it's in Luke chapter 19, verses 29 through 40. And it came to pass when he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mountain called Olivet that he sent two of his disciples saying, Go into the village opposite you, where as you enter you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Loose it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, Why are you loosing it? Then you shall say to him, Because the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went their way and found it just as, had, just as he had said to them. But as they were loosing the colt, the owner of it said to them, Why are you loosing the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of him. Then they brought him to Jesus, and they threw their own clothes on the colt, and they set Jesus on him. And as he went, many spread their clothes on the road. Then as he was now drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. And listen to this, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. That event, of course, we know that because we, you know, if you've been to Sunday school or go to church, you know, that's Palm Sunday we're talking about, right? Palm Sunday, the 10th of Nisan. That was the day, actually, when Passover lambs were brought into Jerusalem and they were examined for four days until the Passover when they would be slaughtered. So four days they, were, they would be examined to make sure there was no blemishes or nothing wrong with that. Here Jesus comes into Jerusalem on the same day when the Passover lambs are being presented for four days. He's the Lamb of God and he's being presented before the people of Israel, the nation of Israel in Jerusalem. And there he's getting examined and everything. And how many people say, I find no fault in him? You know, Pilate, I find no fault in him. The Roman soldier, truly this was the Son of God. The one thief on the cross, this is, you know, remember me when you come into my kingdom. And they could find no fault in Judas. I've betrayed innocent blood because Jesus was presented there. Well, we know that to be Palm Sunday, we also know that that particular Palm Sunday was April 6th, 32 A.D. Now I want to go back to what I was reading earlier in Luke. In verse 39, And some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But he answered and said to them, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. What? Oh, sorry, wrong one. <laughs> Talk about the stones of Israel, okay. <laughs> if you go to Israel today, there's all kinds of stones. Um, you know, by the way, I don't know if you know this, but one of the stones, one of the guys, I should, he now is a believer in Jesus Christ. Did you know that? He is. He's, he's died, and you know, hopefully he has a relationship with the Lord, but if he died, now he's, you know, the Bible says, everyone's going to pronounce that Jesus Christ is Lord. They're all going to bow the knee. So eventually those guys will too at some point. We pray that they do it before they actually pass away. Anyways, that's a side thing. Um, there's lots of stones in Israel. It's funny, when we were there visiting and, and uh, we were going around picking up, and I, my wife and I, we love rocks and stuff, and so I found some really cool ones, and man, I loaded up my suitcase, and I thought, and then I came to customs. I'm like, oh, great. 
I'm going to get thrown. I'm thinking of the like a like I'm going to be thrown in some dungeon in some prison somewhere in Israel, and they open up. They see all these rocks, and I'm like, I'm just waiting for that shoe to drop, and they're like, Okay, you can go. And I talk to some, and they go, They don't. Care. You can have as many rocks as you want because they got so many. Oh, hey, take them all. You know. <laughs> Anyways, lots of stones in Israel. But Jesus said, if those people that day did not declare him king. Even the stones, the, well, the rocks, <laughs> would cry out that Jesus is king. Why? Because that day was the day that was declared by the angel Gabriel to Daniel. Nothing was going to prevent Jesus from being presented as king to Israel. Nothing would stop that from happening. And that's the day we know as Palm Sunday. And April 6th, 32 AD, is exactly 173,000 880 days after Artaxerxes Longimanus issued his decree, March 14th, 445 B.C. Mike, I get goosebumps when I read that kind of stuff, but that has, to the day, been fulfilled. So what's the application for you and I? Well, hopefully you're excited about prophecy, but uh, first thing, Jesus Christ is the Messiah that the Bible prophesied. He was prophesied 500 years before by the angel Gabriel in the book of Daniel, and it happened. He, the, to the day, he appears and was presented as the king to the nation of Israel. The other thing that I think we can take from this is the Bible that you and I hold in our hands, you can trust it. It's God's word. It's God's inspired word. It's not just, you know, can you imagine people trying to come up with, let's write this book that we can really deceive people and we've got to get sevens in here. All the, And there's like 40 different people trying to write the Bible, three different continents over 2,000 years. It's impossible. I mean, it, mentally, just impossible to conceive that it would be written by man. This was authored by God. He inspired men to write the word of God his communication to his people, to us, to this world. So God's word can be trusted. And then the last thing that I want to just mention, you know, nothing was going to present, prevent Jesus from being presented as the king that day. And I just that just comforts me because God's timing for everything in your life and in my life, man, it's sovereign. God's in control. I don't, I don't have to, yeah, you know, things are going to surprise me. Uh, you know, maybe next week I'll get sick or something's going to happen or maybe I'll lose my job or get a, the car blows up or something. You know, things are going to happen. They're going to completely surprise me. But you know what? Nothing surprises God. He's in control. And so for you and I, man, what a comfort that is, especially those of us that have a relationship with Jesus Christ, to know that he's the Savior, his word can be trusted, and everything that takes place in my life, man, I can just trust I can trust a loving and God that's faithful. Why don't you stand up? Let's go, Lord, in prayer. And then we'll have a close with a last worship song.